Hello and welcome to the 60 Go podcast. My name is Thomas Canfell and I'm glad to have your company. Before we have a chat with today's guest, I have to tell you something I found out during the week. A cool thing about hosting a podcast is I can see how many views from each country I get. Naturally, Australia, I presumed, would be a top of the list and it was. But I'd like to give a shout out to my two subscribers from Belgium. Now, when I saw that I had two Belgian subscribers, I thought surely with two I can't be far off being the biggest rugby league podcast in Belgium. So I'm claiming it. Six to go, Belgium's number one rugby league podcast. As we head into episode three, and I seriously can't wait for my guest today as we cover six topics related to the game or even their own career. My guest this week is Paul Kent. In my opinion, Paul is the gold standard for rugby league journalism. Whilst being a highly regarded columnist for the Daily Telegraph, he also hosts NRL 360 on Fox League. His no BS approach has made him someone who commands respect whenever he has something to say. Hope you enjoy our chat. I've been looking forward to this one. Here's Paul Kent. I'm joined by Paul Kent on the next guest of the 60 Go podcast. Kenty, how are you, mate? Yeah, going well. Everything's uh, pretty quiet at the moment, but uh, it's about to spot up again. Yes, yes. Now, I've got six topics to cover with you today. I'm going to kick it off with the Parramatta Eels. Yep. Uh, can you explain to me the logic in letting Reed Marnie go and bringing in Josh Hodson? Now, I would argue Reed Marnie's a better player at this point in their careers, and he also has plenty of more tomorrows. Yeah, that's true. I, I think what you've got to understand when, when player recruitment and uh, player movement happens, and a lot of people don't quite get this, but it's all about the salary cap. It's not like the old days where if you just go out and, and buy the best player you could afford and put the team together that way, it's it's all about making a salary cap work. So if you've got Reed Marnie valued at a certain amount of money and he's asking for more than that, let's say he's asking for 100000 more than you've budgeted to give him. If, 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 you, if you bend and give him that extra 100000 that he's seeking to keep him at the club, the problem is then you have $100,000 less to spend on someone else who you've identified that you either want to keep or you've identified that you want to go out and recruit. That's where the issue comes. So what you've got to at some point is make a decision is the money that the player is seeking, is that worth what it's going to do at your salary cap? Ben Hunt's a really good example of St. George Illawarra. He's a really valued member of the, of the club. He's the captain of the club. He's, he's a state of origin halfback. Yet he's on so much money there, it's very hard for him or anybody to argue that he's providing value for money. And that's what the cap's all about. It's, it's a real, there's a really simple analogy I say to people. If a player's worth 400000 if, if in a true market he's worth 400000 and you're paying him 350000 you've done a good deal. If he's worth 400000 and you're paying him 450000 you've done a bad deal. And, and it's as simple as that. And all it is is trying to get players in your club for, the, for, the, for what represents fair value. And if they're getting more elsewhere, then so be it. At Canterbury, for example, Reed Money Reed is worth that because he's going to have a different role at the club. He's, it's a club trying to get off the bottom of the ladder, so they need senior players, and they're very weak in the spine. So they're willing to pay a little bit more for a quality dummy half because they need that more than what Parramatta need that. In my opinion, Paul, when you look at the Eels, they're, they're a good team with a lot of good players, but they don't have a lot of great 
or excellent. Now, I don't think that they've got any players that could lay claim to being the best in the league at their position. Um, and with the fullback role developing as it is, and, you know, unless you've got Nathan Cleary, who's on track to being immortal, like, you, you know, the, the fullback is so valued in that position and they just bring so much X factor. Can Clint Gutherson be that guy to win them a premiership at fullback? I don't think he stops them from winning a, a, a premiership at fullback, but he can't do it on his own. He needs help through through that spine area. I think Parramatta are reasonably strong. I think the the weak link for me at Parramatta in the, in the spine at the moment is Mitchell Moses. He just he's coming along, but he still hasn't got to where everybody predicted he would get to. And he's now I think he's about twenty seven now. He's no longer a young man like. If you go back and you look at some of the greats of the game, you, you go back to Darren Lockyer or Andrew Johns, or you want to go back to Sterling and Morgan, back before, before then. By the time they were 27, they had a really good catalogue of achievements. And Mitch Moses, he played terrific, obviously, this year in Origin, but that was his first year at Origin uh, in 2021, I should say. So he just... Look... It, I think that's that's where Parramatta are probably not getting value for money, given what they are paying for Mitch Moses. But uh, Gutherson, I think he's a great player, not a great player, but a very good player to have in your side as a uh, as part of the, as part of the machine. But I don't think on his own he's enough to to pick Parramatta up and take him to a premiership. I think he needs help in that area. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Now, Kenty, I'd like to ask you about athletic professionalism. I'm a big NFL fan and a story came out a couple of weeks ago where the Pittsburgh Steelers first round pick from this year, running back Najee Harris, uh, he's being sent home at midnight and sometimes later from the facility because he's constantly watching film and game tapes and trying to get better. And to be fair, that's not an uncommon story in American sport and uh, their commitment to off-field training, I believe is second to none. Now, I, I, I don't mean to put this player on show because I know he's not alone. I'm just using this in a, as an example. In the warm-ups of the grand final last year, Freddie was doing his pre-game interviews and Nathan he asked Nathan Cleary what his week was like and he said he's watched every Melbourne game and he's you know just constantly trying to find weaknesses in the team to try and get better. And uh, Then he asked Abby Corrissau the same question. He said he's just watched Netflix all week. Now, if you were the boss of an NRL club, is that something you'd look at before signing a player? Yeah, it is. It's look, that's fairly common in the game, and I think what's happened in rugby league is we've gone down this track where I was talking to a guy the other day, and I, he called them robots, robot footballers, and I think it's a really apt description. We've got these guys who don't watch a football game all weekend. They won't. They won't watch one. Nathan Cleary, he'll watch all seven other ga- other games at some point. Um, but we've got so many robots in the game who don't need to do that. All they need to be is six foot three, 102 kilos, and be able to run 100 in an even time, and they've got to start somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and when look, yeah, I can take you back to absolute footy knowledge. The amount of times you see a, particularly a back row, they're, they're the ones that usually do it most often. They'll make a break. Suddenly they'll they'll hit it. They'll run a line. There'll be a gap appear, and they go through, and they're so surprised that they're in, they're in clear space. They don't know what to do. And the amount of times you see the fullback coming across in cover defence, somebody will loom up the centre. Generally, will loom up with the the back rower in support, 
and he's got no idea how to draw and pass, no idea how to position his man. I've seen in some instances in recent years where a back rower, representative quality back rower, has got the ball, made the break, panicked, passed too early, so the fullback could then switch from him to his support player in more than enough time. And in fact, in so much time that by the time he did that, the support player was then able to pass it back to the back <laughs> rower. It was a simple it was a simple two on one draw and pass. But because we're training all these robots these days, they don't they don't they they don't need to know some of these fundamental football skills because all the, all the coach wants out of them, don't miss any tackles, get your fifteen hit ups, make a hundred meters, all those things that they're capable of doing, but there's a whole area of the game that they're they're incapable of doing. That's one of the strengths I think Melbourne has shown in recent years. Melbourne at times will switch around positions so players get to know the, the, what other players need in other positions so, and what they're looking for and it just gives it, it rounds out their education a little bit. Uh, we don't see anywhere near that enough in, in our game. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty sad actually. Like, I, think, I think at some point we need to get the rules back to uh, where we're actually bringing back in, in footballs and both a little bit of now rather than just guys who are, who are physic- born physically gifted. Does it surprise you how many NRL players, and they can be, you know, representative quality players who really just aren't actually fans of the game, like genuine fans? It saddens me a bit, to be honest. Like, I just, look, you know, most of us grew up watching the game and adoring the game, and uh, there was always a respect there for the game. Uh, and some of these guys, they've got none of that. But, yeah, I know guys who'll tell you that, They'll watch three or four NBA games a week, but won't watch an NRL game. (laughs) Yeah, they clearly sometimes they don't know who their opponents are this weekend as as they get closer. It's just it's pretty uh, it's a bit of an indictment, but the the, the coaches don't push that. Coaches, I I know guys. Some coaches insist players watch a certain amount of vision that they've already cut and, and edited for them. So what then happens is the coach gives them an iPad, says, go home, I'm going to send you your edits for the week, and you've got to watch it. And the coach can tell whether they've watched it or not. They've got a little device in there where they can essentially see if they, if they know they're watching it or not. And so they see when they're watching it, what time they're watching it. Now, the players, after a while, Jerry, the coach, was aware of this. So what they simply do is they sit down, and while they're watching TV, they just put the little edit cut on on their iPad and just let it play out while they're watching television. That's a yeah, that's a that's a that's a concern. I some coaches that that look they, they know it happens but they can't stop it and they'll in some instances they'll wear that knowing what they get out of the player on the weekend. But one thing is for sure the player would be better if he actually sat down and sat down and did what he was asked to do. Yeah, that's right. That's right now. We'll move on to this. You're quite close to Ricky Stewart, and he became a head coach at a fairly young age. Did you always think he'd become a successful head coach? Because there's no doubt it would have been a hard transit. It is a hard transition from great player to becoming a, a even a good coach, let alone a great coach. Yeah, look, I wasn't sure about that. Like, the, I don't think you can actually predict that. We've seen other great players. Wally Lewis, for example, was a one of the all-time greats and immortal, but he. He really struggled to coach players. Uh, we've seen other players in the past who have come in and done one or two years as a as a head coach and really struggled. Yet they've been 
Australian test players. They just haven't been able to do it. The thing about coaching, which, which I've learned, now there was no doubt in, in, in response to your question about Ricky, there's no doubt Ricky was the brains of that Canberra outfit. He was the smartest player in, in, in the team and he was a guy who knew how the team had to function to win and he was a guy who, despite all the other legends in the team, he was the one that they really needed in the side. Like From a spiritual point of view, they loved looking across Noel Melbourne Ingers putting his boots on, but from the, from the team actually getting across the line, they needed Ricky Stewart. And there's no better example than 93. 93, they lost two games all year. They were flying. They were, I think they were three or four wins clear as minor premiers. And then in the last game, second last game, Ricky Stewart broke his ankle, uh, won the Daly M that year, won the Rothens medal that year. But Canberra didn't win another game without him. So he, he was the guy who made the team function. Uh, and he always had that. Whether he could teach that to players is always going to be the issue because if you look through the game now, Craig Bellamy, one of the great coaches, but was not a great player. Trent Robinson, not a great player, but a, a great coach. Uh, so we've seen this model come through where players have uh, not necessarily been, had great careers, but they've been able to understand the game. And most importantly, they've been able to teach the game. One of the things about, I think, players who are not star players they understand the frustrations and the difficulties that players go through in learning new skills or in developing their skills, where I know in the past some of the great players who have played international football and played countless origin games and then try to become a head coach, they generally get frustrated at the inability of the players to be able to carry out what they're trying to coach them to do. And and they'll say, well, just get the ball and do this with it. And the players like... I, I can't actually do it, it's too hard. I was talking to a player this morning uh, who was actually telling me about how uh, when Andrew Johns got to Newcastle, uh, where he's been, he started work again this year, I mean, as, a, as an assistant coach, and he, he grabbed one of the players as having difficulty getting to his man once he got the ball. So Andrew Johns came along and just said to him, look, what, this is what you do. He said, start moving before you go, catch the ball here, and he said, then you'll be able to get across. And the, the player looked at him and said, this is really simple. Yeah, he couldn't understand why he didn't know that. Then another coach of the club said, hang on, what you, when he spotted it later, what are you doing? You're on the long, running the wrong line. And Joey said, well, no, I taught him to do that. At that point, the coach said, okay, you go ahead and do it. So Andrew Johns has been able to sort of, I suppose, parlay that into his, in, into his coaching as well. But not every person can do that. And I think too often they get caught in... Uh, just being able to, the, the, the natural gifts don't translate to, to being a, a natural coach. It's very few champion players have become champion coaches as well. I'd like to ask you about your old co-host of 360, and that is Ben Eichen. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you were pretty open at the time about the size of the job he was undertaking, and I, I'd like your thoughts on how he's going at the Broncos and with, with, with Brisbane getting Reynolds and Catewell and a few others. Should finals be in expectations next year? Absolutely, should. Yeah, and I think he's doing a terrific job. I think I've spoken to him, and look, we spoke a lot about the Broncos before he was even offered the job and about how how they need to be fixed. And again, they were a club, you know, back to earlier in our conversation, they were a club whose salary cap was totally out of shape. And they were, the Broncos went through this era, and, just, and they're only just now getting out of it. Uh, well, I would say they're not even out of it yet, where 
part, part of what you do as a club when you develop players, part of the reason you develop those players is that when they then become established first grade players, you're able to pay them a little bit less to stay at your club. So the loyalty factor, the fact that they're happy, they're always coming to count. So when another club offers, say, a player 500000 you say, look, we'll give you 450 he'll stay because he knows he's happy there. There's no guarantee he might be happy at the new club. But the Broncos were in this really weird situation where players were developing at the club and then they were going out and when the club player would make first grade, they were paying overs to keep the player at the club. So they were really sort of shortchanging themselves in a way and the Surricat was so out of shape they got, because they were panicked, panicked into retaining players because of the, the well, I suppose, the fallout if they, uh, if they missed the player. So their salary cap was out of shape. What Icon has done is come in and identified essentially, and uh, the, good, the good coaches, good clubs all do it, is, is essentially what's working, what's not, and what is value for money and what's not value for money. And once you can figure that out, and that's in regard to the way you operate as a club, but also how you shape your cap, who you pay, how you pay them, those sorts of things. And what, and what that eventually does is you get, you get your, your, your club back in shape. So they, they knew, like, they, they'd had countless young halves coming through who they were paying overs to keep. And then others, they, were, they then went out and got um, Brody Croft, paid a lot of money to him when Melbourne had decided, and Ike and I had this conversation, if Melbourne had decided they can't win a competition with Brodie Croft as halfback, why would Brisbane go out and pay him a lot of money to go and play there? Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. And that's, that's what the Broncos just had sort of seemingly no concept of. If Melbourne had you know, identified him as a guy that can't win a comp with, why are you paying him overs? If you get him on a cheap rate, I get that because you're getting a bit of value in it then. But they paid him good money. So, and, th- and then they lost a couple of young halves coming through, one of whom, Sam Walker, is now killing them at the Roosters. Yeah. So they, th- to get Brody Croft, they sacrificed Sam Walker, which in any man's language <laughs> is a poor deal. And that's, that's what Icon's there to fix, those sorts of decisions that were getting made. And, and essentially, and, and they've, they've, already, they've lost a couple of players that they just couldn't, agree on, on the amount, but they've also got players in like Reynolds who they knew uh, that, look, there comes some risk. He's 30 or 31 now and he wants a, a three or four-year deal. Uh, South weren't prepared to go that, but for, again, for where Brisbane are and for what Brisbane need, it was worth, it was worth the investment and that's, that's what they've done and that's what they've already found with him. He, he's worth what, they, what they've paid for. He's already turned up at training when he didn't need to be. He's been there for a few weeks Oh, and you need to be, and, and from all reports, the, the impact he's having on his teammates is extremely positive. Just to round this out, is, do you think Kevy's safe if they miss finals? Uh, uh, look, in a normal year, I'd say no. But I don't think next year's going to be a normal year. I think there's going to be a lot in next year, that, uh, we're, a lot of hidden snags that we haven't seen. Uh, I've got... Yeah, I think COVID is going to really impact on next season. And I think the clubs that handle that best, and it's going to be tough, but the clubs, I reckon is that you can get a real rails run if you're clever about how you're going to manage your COVID situation next year. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, well, what, see, what's going to happen there is we're seeing it already where 
players are getting positive. We've seen Tom Burgess has tested positive. A few Newcastle Knights players have been in high-risk areas. A couple of Raiders have tested positive. So what's the NRL going to do there? Are the NRL going to say, OK, if you have, for example, a player comes in, goes out, goes to the pub on you know, Sunday afternoon after a Friday night game, turns up at training on Sunday, finds out Sunday afternoon that he was in a hot spot, he goes, gets himself tested, he's positive, he's exposed himself to the players. Say we have a, a majority of 15, 17, 18 players all test positive through the 30-man squad. Does the NRL allow that club to postpone the game? Do they have to forfeit the game? Or will they have to go and try and find replacement players from the junior league? It's going to have a real impact on on the season because given what's happening right now and happened in the the past month, it doesn't appear any way that the NRL is going to go through unscathed next season. We've already seen Pat Cummins miss the second test because he went to a restaurant. We've seen players overseas in, in uh, the NFL, for example, where clubs are continually standing down players and having to go to their, their rookie quarterbacks to try and get through games, all because they've been exposed. So eventually you can see what the NRL, what decision the NRL makes there. And uh, the clubs, players don't want to go back into a bubble. But if, if some clubs have got the resilience to go back into a self-imposed bubble, they could steal some wins next year by being able to maintain a full-strength squad that other clubs won't do. That's a great point, and that's probably the biggest story that's not being talked about now. Kenty, on the subject of Daly, Daly Cherry Evans, if he's not the highest-paid player in the game, he's close enough. Is he in Manly's future plans? Not at that price, he's not. Yeah. Not at that price. And again, okay, yeah, I'm, going to, I'm repeating myself. But it's all value for money. And again, Manly, when Manly put that offer to him, they tapped him in, they gave him a percentage of the of whatever the salary cap was going to be. So if the salary cap goes up, he goes up, I think it's 14% of the salary cap. Yeah, That's a lot of money. A lot, a lot of money. And that was, again, panic buying from Manly where they just, uh, they'd already lost Kieran Foran and they just lost the nerve to be able to lose uh, David Terry Evans as well. And because of that, they... Uh, they agreed to the deal. And uh, look, I don't think it's been a successful deal for them uh, because their win ratio is not as good as it is when Tom Tavoyevich is in and out of the team. So uh, he's, he's certainly the most important player at Manly. And I think uh, you know, once the negotiations come up for the next deal, the, the lion's share is going to go to Tom. I've heard you speak before about how fragile a top-heavy roster is, and we've seen that play out. Manly's a perfect example. Um, with the Travojevic brothers commanding quite a bit as well. and um, Is there any talk that the Dolphins are interested in getting him back to Queensland? Not with Cherry Evans, no. I think he's just on too much money. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is sometimes your manager can do too good a deal for you because no, no club, was, as, as far as I'm aware, has shown any interest in trying to poach David Cherry Evans out of his manly deal. Because to do that, you'd have to pick up pick up the slack, and it's just too much money in your cap. And that, that's what it's all about. The same with Ben Hunt. Ben Hunt, he, his manager's done too good a deal. It's, it's so good a deal <laughs> that he's not really worth staying at St. George because he just takes up too much of their cap. And that's where clubs start to negotiate to move a player on. So if they can get you out, and even though they've got to pick up, still pick up quite a share of, of that 
salary, it, it gives them some cap relief and they can actually go out and get another player. And between the player who's going to replace, say, example, Ben Hunt, who's already at the club and the player they can go out and get, they're hoping they get more upside there than just having Ben Hunt by himself. And that's what it's all about. And that's we've seen that in recent years. And West, Josh Reynolds is a perfect example. His manager did too good a job. He went and got him a, a, a contract at West Tigers where by the time other people came in and looked at the deal, just said, look, we just can't afford this at the club. It's, it's, it's way out of perspective here. So we've got, we've got to move him on. They tried to shop him around, couldn't, but then had to send him to, to England. So poor Josh Reynolds, whose manager's done nothing but a good job, is now finding himself having to play in England because he's just simply getting paid too well to be of any value to an NRL club. And Jerry Evans is the same. He, he, look, Manly won't move him on, uh, certainly not yet. But uh, I'll tell you what, the, uh, the next conversation I have around salaries is going to be very interesting. Candy, to finish it off, I, I love talking about immortals, and there are a few guys that are just in the queue at the moment to get in and uh, just have to wait, like Smith and Thurston, for example. Uh, I want to ask you about two guys individually, though. One guy I th- I think should be an immortal, but never gets any hype when it comes to talk. Is when it comes time to talk, that is, is Glenn Lazarus. Um, are you with me there, or do you have a different view? Yeah, look, I'm with you. Uh, I, I think Glenn Lazarus uh, was certainly he's a proper change the way they played. Uh, he had an impact. You talk to most people in the game who know they all. No one ever downplays his ability or his impact in the game. Uh, my, my, my issue is more with the Immortals concept. I, I think the NRL uh, are cheapening it in a way uh, by trying to commercialise it too much. Uh, they had a vote a few years back when Greenberg was running the game uh, where they were going to induct up to two new Immortals every four years. And I really disagree with that. I think the game already has a Hall of Fame. The focus should be the Hall of Fame, and then within the Hall of Fame, you should have the Immortals, who are the very elite of the elite. But all our focus is always on the Immortals. You almost got to bypass the the Hall of Fame to get in. And the one, you know, I was involved in a phone hookup the NRL had earlier this this season, you know, earlier in twenty one twenty one, where they just tried to. Get to reassess the immortals and what they're doing with it. And I said to them, I think the one thing you really need to just remember as far as how the immortals should work is it will always be judged not by the quality of people who are in the immortals, but by the quality of people who can't get in the immortals. Yeah. And if there's players there who we're arguing, Glenn Lazarus, for years we argued Norm Proven, uh, you know, Thurston, Lockyer, you, you go through them. If there are players there who aren't in it, then that makes the, the immortals who are immortal even more special. Yeah. But if you start to just give a, yeah, it's like a, it becomes like a primary school sports carnival where everyone gets a ribbon. It just loses its value. So the, the game can't, can't go down this track where it continually responds to the public criticisms where people say, oh, he should be an immortal. Look, I'll concede Cameron Smith should be a lock for an immortal, given he's played the most games, scored the most points, and dominated for probably 13 of his, well, 15 of his 18 years that he played or whatever it was. 
But, you know, I don't think all the other guys that everyone mentions should be walk-ups. I think Glenn Lazarus for sure should be in the conversation. And I know, having been on the committee, that Glenn Lazarus is, is talked about for some time in all those meetings. So he's not, he's not forgotten, he's not overlooked. Uh, it just becomes a process where uh, you move through the people and you try and just keep narrowing and, and bringing down the size of the group. Uh, but I think the game just needs to really just take check about who is an immortal and, and how often we're, we're actually um, admitting immortals. My, my um, suggestion to the game at the time which I'm hoping that they, they listened to, was to basically have it a little bit like the AFL Hall of Fame, where within the AFL Hall of Fame, who ironically loved the Immortals concept so much they copied it, but they call their Immortals legends. So you, get, you go in the Hall of Fame, and then once you're in the Hall of Fame, you can be elevated to legend status. But there's a simple rule there. There's only ever allowed 10% legends to Hall of Famers. So... I think they're up around 130, 140 Hall of Famers or something like that. So you're only about 13 or 14 legends. And you've got to wait for another 10 guys to be admitted in the Hall of Fame before you can even consider admitting one more legend. And at the moment, rugby league's out of whack. There's 13 immortals, and I think there's about 112 in the Hall of Fame. And I just think that that's where the focus needs to be. And rather than naming two immortals every four years, which is a ridiculous idea, it should have been shot down the moment it was brought up. And whoever brought it up should have been told to leave the meeting. <laughs> Seriously. It's a, because I tell you, it, it makes the Hall of Fame irrelevant because people don't care about the Hall of Fame. All they want to be is an immortal because so many guys are getting the blazer. They, just, they need to get it right. Otherwise, they'll ruin the whole process. And, and part of why the immortals are so special it's because for nearly 30 years, there was only four. And there was never going to be any more. And it was only after we started getting into the 2000s, you know, late nights, that everyone said, well, hang on, it's been another 20, 25 years of football since the last Immortals were announced. So maybe it's time to look at some more. And that's what they eventually did, which was fair enough because they acknowledged players who were not even playing at the time. That, uh, For example, Wally Lewis, who were not even playing at the time uh, that, that the original models were not playing NRL the time the original models were, were announced. So I get I get growing it, but you just you can't grow it too quickly. They've got to slow it down again, and they've got to just bring the numbers and and keep a reasonable percentage of of that to the Hall of Fame, because then the Hall of Fame remains special too. Yeah, and I was going to bring up one more player, and but judging yeah. by by your talk, you're probably. Um, probably leaning towards a no for this player being an immortal, which, you know, uh, you know, totally understand, you know, I, I totally get that the immortals are the, mm. you know, the peak of the peak, but you know, a guy like, like Cooper Cronk, like when he went, if he retired at Melbourne and like, didn't go to the roosters, I would say that there's probably no chance he gets an immortal, but to go to the roosters and go back to back there and individually win three in a row, that, that would yeah. have to put him in the conversation. I would have thought. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and again, look, and this has again changed, okay? So this is me getting old. But <laughs> when the original Immortals were announced, so you had Gazni, who at the time that the game was played, he was the best player 
in the most important position on the field. Centre was the most important position back in his era. Every team needed a, a gun centre, and he was the best centre by a mile and scored, I think it was 125 tries in 127 games, which is extraordinary. And retired at 27 because he did his crew shit, and back, back in those days, they couldn't fix it, so he was finished. The other player was Clive Churchill. Clive Churchill changed the way fullbacks played. Clive Churchill was the full, first fullback to start running the ball. Back then, they played like a rugby fullback, catch the ball, kick it back upfield. Clive Churchill was the first fullback to really start chiming into the back line, creating that extra man. And soon enough, every fullback had to be playing the way Churchill played. Then you got Johnny Raper was the, was the lock, best player in the game. Uh, again, Johnny Raper was a cover defender. He, uh, he brought that into the game because he's such a workaholic. Uh, statistically, I think it's a 60... I think it's a 63 test against... You know, 65 and 67. One of those Raper played. They still say statistically... I got The Fox Sports lab guys went through it. They, they say statistically the greatest game ever played as far as his input runs, meters, tackles, all the rest of it. Uh, so Raper changed the game. And the other was Bob Fulton who changed the game because Bob Fulton changed the game in a way, not necessarily in how he played. Uh, Bob Fulton, if he was playing in today's game, would be Billy Slater. He was that type of player, just always around the ruck, whether he was playing 5-8 or centre, always around the ruck, and that's where he did his most damage. But he changed the game because he was so fit and competitive, and it just brought the game into a whole new era. And, and so... I, I've always sort of looked at the, the Immortals as they've got to have something beyond just their stats. Norm Proven, for example, was a great, great player, but didn't change the game. I, I was never a vote for Norm to be in the Hall of Fame and the, and the Immortals because I know he had his 10 premierships. I know he was captain, I think, for uh, six of them. But again, statistically, he, he's unbeatable, but he played in the era where, you could, where, where a team clearly did dominate that way. Uh, I think after they lost South Sydney, after they lost, didn't make the 11th, the 12th season after 11 in a row, South Sydney won four of the next five. So you could dominate here if we had the right infrastructure to club and the right juniors and all that because back then they had no import rule. So I just think you've got to have some beyond your stats. And Cooper was a you know, great player. He really was a great player. But I just don't think he's at that level. Hall of Fame, absolutely. Put him in the Hall of Fame. I think he should be there. Everything he's done in the game, his ability to get the most out of his talent, I don't think I've seen anybody do more than, than less than what he started with. He, he came into the game and Cooper was going to be a, a journeyman footballer, uh, but he, through hard work and intelligence, he turned himself into you know, one, of, one of the Queensland greats. Uh, so I've got no knock on him as a player. I just don't think he's at that level where he should go into the Immortals. Well, Kenty, that's it from myself. We could go on for hours. I can't thank you enough for coming on the 60 Go podcast today. It's been a big thrill for me. Uh, I've admired your work for a long time, whether it be in rugby league or boxing. So I appreciate you taking the time. A pleasure, mate. Thank you for having me on uh, any time. Thanks, mate. Talk soon. Beautiful. Can't thank Kenty enough for coming on the show today. I asked him earlier in the week if he would like to come on, and he couldn't have been more generous with his time. If you want to find all of Kenty's work, you can over at the Daily Telegraph. And of course, you can catch him during the season as the host of NRL 360. My name is Tom Canfell. It's been so good to have your company. Until next time, this has been the 60 Go Podcast, and that is full time.